This is Dialogue in Review. Um, before we start, I uh, just wanted to say, as always, we've invited our speakers to speak for themselves and to give us their valuable perspectives on important ideas and issues. They speak only for themselves and do not represent Dialogue or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And with that said, we're going to turn the time over to Margaret, who's going to be uh, moderating our conversation. We'll dive right into what we have for you tonight. Great. Thank you so much, Esther. Um, so I am so excited to be talking about this issue with these four incredible women. Um, I am just going to quickly introduce uh, who we have, and then we'll start the conversation about their work in this issue. Um, so Blair Osler is a philosopher specializing in Mormon and queer studies. She's the author of the book Queer Mormon Theology, and her dialogue article in this issue touches on issues of feminism, polygamy, physicalism, and the concept of a plurality of gods. Um, next, Christina Rossetti studies the history and lived experience of Mormon fundamentalists in the Intermountain West. Her article is about how Mormon fundamentalist groups have understood and taught the doctrine of Heavenly Mother and how it is inextricably intertwined with women's authority in the home and church. Then uh, Katie Rich, who blogs for the Exponent and is on the Exponent 2 staff, she studies 19th and 20th century Mormon women's history and gender-based po uh, power dynamics in the LDS church. Her personal essay in this issue, which is just really beautiful, is about her journey with Heavenly Mother, how it's affected her, um, her personally, and how the church has approached the topic um, over, over her lifetime. And then finally, we'll be talking with Catherine Knight Sontag, who is the author of The Tree at the Center and The Mother Tree, Discovering the Love and Wisdom of Our Divine Mother which just barely came out, um, which is very exciting. And we'll be discussing her poem, Ascension. So that's just a really quick overview of who we have on the panel. Um, as we just, this is gonna be more of a, a discussion because so much of the interests and um, expertise of the panelists overlap. And I think, um, you know, a lot of these women could talk about a lot of the issues that are in uh, one another's articles. So I'm, I'm anticipating a very interesting um, discussion. So I wanted to begin talking about the cover art, which I think is a, uh, just a striking piece. Um, there's more art in this issue. Oh, thank you for putting it up so people can see it. There's more art in this issue than is typical for dialogue. Um, so I want to talk about it for, for just a minute. Um, the cover art is by Sarah Lynn Lindsay, uh, just provided a really extraordinary cover, um, curated by art editor Andy Pitcher Davis. And then Paige Turner's stunning art is also in this issue. Um, I want to pause a minute to talk about the cover art because it's unusual for cover art in that it's actually part of a performance piece. And for those who haven't seen it, it's it's this white dress. Um, I'm glad people who are here now can can look at it. But it's without a person or a or a mannequin wearing it. It's spread across this dark surface. 
And the performance part of it is that the artist carried this white dress through Manhattan and at the end rubbed foliage into the fabric and in doing so revealed names she had written in wax onto the actual fabric of the dress. And the names were of people who had died in the 1918 flu epidemic. Um, so as our conversation proceeds, I'd love for everyone to be thinking of the layers of that with the empty dress, forgotten and hidden names, um, leaves of trees revealing those names, and all of this happening in the middle of another pandemic. It's just incredible and speaks to, I think, how important art is to this entire conversation about Heavenly Mother. Does anyone else want to jump in here with thoughts about this cover or, yeah, Katie. Yeah, I thought, I mean, obviously the cover is just stunning and I love those layers of meaning, but I, earlier today I was listening to Catherine. So on this call, Catherine Knight Sontag's introduction to the mother tree. And there's this moment when she talks about how Jesus is a specific being, but we also come to know him through metaphor metaphor of the lamb and the bread of life and the way and how we can discuss God the mother through these symbolisms and these meanings. And I love having these these multiple layers to enter a conversation where in in Mormon belief there's often this idea of this embodied heavenly mother as as a being, but we also have ways to enter this discussion of the feminine divine through symbolism and metaphor as well. Yeah, thanks. I think not just the opportunity, but almost, almost that it has like a need to do it that way, right? Okay, well, let's jump right into talking with Blair um, about your article here. Um, so, um, in your article, you talk about how um, Eliza Snow and Tulage reasoned out the existence of Heavenly Mother by using earth life as a kind of template for understanding the heavens or deity. This is what you describe as physicalism theology, um, kind of looking around us at earth and then saying, this is, you know, this is what we see on earth, so this is how we understand God. And it's, it's really commonly used in Mormonism. Um, so can you just sort of briefly under explain physicalism? Um, you know, we understand it's a really complex uh, concept, but briefly explain it. And then uh, maybe tell us a little bit about like, do you see any danger about relying too heavily on this concept of physicalism? Um, is God within our understanding? Here we are publishing an issue on, on deity, right? Can we, can we even begin to grasp at this idea? Yeah. So one of my favorite things, well, there's a lot of my favorite things about Mormonism and Mormon theology, but one of them is that we are a very practical religion and our theology and the way we 
view the world and the way we view the heavens are very much intertwined with one another, right? We have this idea of something's bound on earth, it's bound in heaven, that these are very connected things. It's not like a totally separate distinction. It's something that's intertwined together. Um, physicalism itself is the idea that, um, that everything in the world is physical or supervenes on the physical. So we live in a very tactile, tangible world. We can touch, we can see, we can smell and all these kinds of things. Um, and this is the way in which we navigate the world. There are other things outside that kind of that are like, you know, like math, like is, is math physical, right? Um, physicalists would say, yeah, but it supervenes on the physical. The reason we have math is because there's three objects there and I can count them one, two, three. It, uh, it, it, it depends on my body, on my brain and all sorts of other things. So everything in the world is somewhat physical. Um, this is huge in Mormonism, right? It's this idea that um, everything is matter and even spirit matter, right? Joseph Smith has this idea of like, even with our more refined eyes, we could see that all is matter, even spirit matter, right? And so this is a reoccurring theme throughout all our theology. And one of the big things that people use to, um, I don't even want to say justify the existence of Heavenly Mother, because that's not quite right either, but um, it uh, assumes the existence of Heavenly Mother is because if there are mothers on earth, then there has to be mothers in heaven. And I, I think that's beautiful because that's how we interpret things. We talk about families being together forever. We talk about um, God having children, right? We are children of God. Where does that saying come from? These are all physical relational words we use to describe our families and our relationships to one another. Um, I love it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's beautiful. I mean, we get a cool, awesome feminine deity out of it, like bonus points. Love it. Um, in my paper, I talk, uh, I, I go further than that, right? I'm like, okay, if the heavens are a pattern for things above or earth is a pattern and these things are too connected, well, let's, let's take a closer look. What else does this imply? This implies that there are multiple heavenly mothers. If we all have the opportunity to become heavenly mothers, um, if we all have the opportunity to grow up from little gods to big gods, you know, God with a little G to God with a big G, then there's going to be a lot of heavenly mothers and a lot of heavenly parents. And there are queer bodies that exist. There are intersex bodies that exist. There are infertile bodies that exist. And so sometimes people like to come up with arguments that, again, that super bean on the physical that say, oh, well, these things are mistakes and they'll just be fixed later. So this becomes a, then an ableist argument of physicalism of like, oh, you're going to be a deaf heavenly mother deaf is a problem you're not going to be deaf in the next life we'll fix you up same with being intersex or infertile or heaven forbid even how prophets have taught your skin color will change things like that so we have this what idea does a perfected body mean exactly a perfected body and this all supervenes on the physical and so when we talk about like if there is dangers in physicalism, I think it is taking our current and existing prejudices and then deifying them, right? That there is one perfect physical way to do this. And it's like, but there, uh, last time I checked, we're all made in the image of God. So, but you want to paint the image of God as something smaller than humanity, then, well, we need to reckon with that. We need to take a closer look and see what all encompasses the image of God. So in the paper, I talk about that. In physicalism, I also talk a little bit about 
polygamy and the idea of multiple heavenly mothers there. And I know that's really difficult for some people to talk about and that that can be very triggering. And I want to respect all those spaces too, but let's just at least understand that Joseph Smith um, had multiple wives and that's not changing anytime soon. Policy and all sorts of things and personal preferences, everything. But the founder of our religion has multiple wives and we're gonna have to hold space for that in our theology. We have to hold space for that. And I'm sure Christina is gonna talk more, way more about that than I am. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna stop right there. But sometimes in our physicalist theology and our ideas, we think, oh, well, there's only gonna be one. Why? because I only want there to be one. And it's like, okay, yeah. I, and I respect that for you. And just like we can respect for a lesbian, you know, well, I want there to be two. So we can all have our differences and still recognize that heavenly mother, God, the heavenly family, the eternities is so much bigger than just, you know, heavenly father, heavenly mother, let's all try to be exactly the same and homogenize into these very simple, small silos. Yeah. Okay. We're off to a great start. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. I'm like, um, did so I hit all the controversial points yet? <laughs> <laughs> so, so going off of this, you know, God is sort of bigger or, or more than you expect. Um, you had this, you wrote this line, God in your essay, God is as familial, personal, and physical as a great grandparent or great grandchild. And I think that the first part of that would be something that a lot of us would expect. Like, yes, God is sort of like my great grandparent, like sort of this ancestral person that you don't really know, but you kind of identify with, but like, yeah, you've inherited some parts from them and, um, but you don't have like, a, you know, it's not like your grandparent who gave you pieces of candy and you remember really well, right? But I think a lot of people would be surprised by your use of great-grandchild here. So I was wondering if you could say more about, about that, about going the other way down the, the genealogical ladder. Absolutely. No, I'm so glad you picked up on the little things. I use words very deliberately and people are like, yeah, I'm like, no, 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 wait. Let's talk about eternity for a hot second, okay? So when we think about this idea of eternity and God being existing for all eternity and all these kinds of things, even though Mormonism, we have like a little bit of a trick in that because we're like, God was once as we are now and is now a God. So God grew into Godhood, but we like to think of God as existing forever. So if that's the case, and let's, as you notice the family tree and we're all children of God and we all have the opportunity to be God too, let's pretend time is linear it goes both directions. It goes all the way back to your ancestors, but all the way forward to humans that haven't even been created yet, that aren't even, you know, in, in, in our ovaries or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a long line going forward and backwards. And sometimes I think in our minds, it's easier to imagine what has been than it is to look at where we're going and look at that future path. Um, I, I, I also think that sometimes it's a reflection on how we look at children as well, that we don't want to see our children as little gods, especially when they're toddlers and throwing, you know, cheese puffs at their sibling. Like, we don't think of that as, you know, little gods with a G. But 
um, it, it, it does, it goes both directions. We are all children of God. So when we think about like the deification, the rise, theosis, all of us entering into this heavenly family together in celestial glory. Yeah, it's my grandma, but it's also my daughter. It's, it's the whole crew and it's going every which direction. Eternity is more than now and the past. It's also the future, but it's all right here happening together. So I'm so glad that you picked up on that because it's very important that we look, look ahead too. God's still in the making. Yeah. So when I, when I um, have talked with artists about their models that they've used to represent Heavenly Mother, um, a lot of female artists in particular have used their mothers, their great-grandmothers, possibly their great, uh, yeah, their grandmothers or their great-grandmothers or sort of more distant female ancestors, maybe somebody they didn't know, but they have a a picture of them um, as their model for Heavenly Mother, um, which I thought was sort of a fascinating choice. And, And for many of them in that process, it really strengthened that relationship. And so I was curious if you have any thoughts about why so many artists would be drawn to using that that female ancestry or female lineage as models for depicting heavenly mother. Again, I think, yeah, I think it all comes back to our physicalist lens and how we view our theology, right? Like we we take it so literally that the lens we have right now for heavenly mother, we look at our mothers and then start painting that and painting that and painting that because it's a really it's a really practical practical and useful way to um, think about where we've been. Um, I think going forward is just something that we're not particularly accustomed to, and I think also it it can feel like using your left hand if you're right-handed. It's just mm-hmm. a little bit more awkward when you're not used to using it as much. I think that. Um, I like, I like really weird things about Mormonism, even the things people make fun of us about, like I, if it's queer, bring it, I love it. So like Joseph Smith had this idea about infants on thrones, right? And we've all read interesting, funny things about that. But um, for me, when I think about that, I think about the idea of what age is a God and what is age in the scope of eternity. So when we think about heavenly mother going backwards, that makes genealogical sense to us in our mortal lens. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it follows the same going forward, but we're not really used to that. And so I would love for people to get more comfortable with it too. I think it's also a good indicator of where we put our efforts as well. I think sometimes, and I mean this, it's good in addition to. Um, Sometimes we focus so much on being, you know, dutiful to our ancestors and upholding tradition and making so sure that elderly people are not offended by new ideas that we forget to create something better for our children going forward. We hang on to that past trauma. We hang out to those past ideas and there's, there's value in that. So it's not like get rid of all of that. It's not, but also in addition to moving forward, I want to leave my daughter with something better than I was given just as my mom wanted to do for me. My mom, sometimes she has these like magical sage words of wisdom. And one thing she would always tell me and my sisters growing up is she would say, you just hope your children turn out better than you do. And I asked, I was like, why? 
And she's like, if each generation gets a little bit better, a little bit kinder, a little bit more intelligent and a little more godlike, you know, humanity's going in the right direction. And so, so sometimes we're so backwards looking that we forget to look forwards and focus on the future and the hope. And again, in Mormonism, we have this idea saved for the, the, you've been saved for the last days. I freaking love it. And I love that it applies to every next generation. And I hope every kid gets to hear that and go out into the world with this vision. I was saved for right now to do something special for the next generation. Heck yeah, I'm on fire for it. Let's do it. Yeah. Huh. That makes me think about um, what it would be like for, like, if you're talking about great, your great grand mother and or great grandparent and your great grandchild like what would it be for artists to think about that as well in their depiction of heavenly mother like using their grandmother or perhaps older artists using their granddaughter it could be absolutely absolutely um okay so finally i just wanted to ask you i was so moved by the ending of your piece and your rewriting of of the song i am a child of god um, partly because that is how I sing the song to my seven-year-old at bedtime. And um, I was just wondering if you can say more about it, why you chose that song and why you decided to end your article with it. Oh, yeah. Um, so I do this thing sometimes where I write intellectual articles and then I throw in primary hymns because I'm like, yes, why aren't we doing this more often? Um, so the title of the article is I am a child of gods, plural. And so the end, it ends with the song, I am a child of gods. And um, the only thing I change is the pronouns. I just change it to they instead of he. And um, in doing that, and that's the way I sing it to my children and the way we do that in our home. But um, part of the reason I do that is to recognize that God is so much bigger. God couldn't be encompassed with just one pronoun, even though I know they is one pronoun, but it also includes many. It also includes people who use they pronouns. It also includes, um, again, going backwards and going forwards, includes all the genders, all the races, all the abilities, all the things. And if, if we could take something as simple as the primary hymn, I am a child of God's and expand that you know, it's, it's, it really makes, you know, writing with your left hand a little more comfortable because it's just adding an S on the end. They pronouns easy peasy. Look, we all get to come have celestial glory together. Isn't this fun? Yeah, yeah. Like we should, we should do that. Yeah, no, it's this little linguistic change, but it completely gives a new sense to, to this primary song. So yeah, thank you. Um, Okay, if there's anything else anyone wants to add before we move to Christina's piece. Okay, so another well-known uh, Mormon uh, hymn here we're gonna talk about. Um, Christina, um, you open your article with a reference to the hymn, Oh My Father, um, which is well-known within LDS circles, but then you bring it up, you, you bring up the companion hymn, Oh My Mother, from the AUB hymnal, 
which is not well known within LDS circles, despite also being attributed to Eliza R. Snow. Can you tell us more about this second hymn and, and how it's used within the AUB faith? Uh, yeah. Um, so like you said, it's it's not attributed. It's it it's attributed to Eliza R. Snow in the hymnal. It's not by her. It's by William C. Harrison. That's fine. Um, it was originally in um, the Juvenile Instructor. Um, but if I can, I'd like to just read the first stanza for anyone who hasn't had a chance to read the dialogue article, because I think some might just kind of be interested in um, how it sounds. Um, but it starts, O oh, my mother, my heart longest to again be by thy side in the home I once called heaven in thy mansion up on high, how you gave me words of counsel guides to aid my straying feet, how you taught me by true example, all of father's laws to keep. Um, so it sounds exactly <laughs> like it's very much like, um, oh, my father. And when you open the hymnal for the Apostolic United Brethren, which is um, currently the largest Mormon fundamentalist um, religion of Mormons that practice polygamy. Um, oh, my father is on the right and oh, my mother is on the left and they're side by side. Um, and I've, I've never sung it in a meeting, um, but I do remember the first time I saw it. And um, fundamentalist women generally have mentioned that it's usually sung on Mother's Day. We're all sure. I know. Um, and I've also seen pictures of- is it, is it both that are sung on Mother's Day or is it only Oh My Mother? I don't know. I mean, I've just, when I've asked when is it sung, I hear Mother's Day. So I'm assuming it's just Oh My Mother. Um, the reason I saw it is because on the day, this particular day that I was at an AUB meeting, we sang Oh My Father. And so I opened the hymnal and I was like, oh. Um, and for up until very recently, the Apostolic United Brethren was using the regular LDS hymn book that most people know. Um, they're one of the only groups that has made their own to incorporate their own hymns. So um, I saw both of them. Um, and the hymn kind of circulates in um, fundamentalist women's Facebook groups. Um, I'm in one in particular that is kind of across the Mormon restoration of women from all from all groups. And I see it in there quite a bit. Um, but outside of that, I think one of why it struck me, at least, um, I think the importance of the hymn is not so much how it's used, but the fact that it, it exists. Um, and it was kind of brought back out of history, out of the juvenile instructor, out of this 19th century magazine. Um, and its presence is a testament that, women, that Heavenly Mother is visible. Um, I hear a lot of feminists in this community rightfully who talk about how Heavenly Mother is invisible in Mormonism. And that's not true. Um, Heavenly Mother is invisible in the LDS Church. She's not invisible in Mormonism. Wow, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so you point out that in fundamentalist circles, um, the power and authority of Heavenly Mother stands side by side with sexual abuse of women and girls. Um, in Margaret Toscano's article in this issue, she brings up the, she calls it the double bind of tying Heavenly Mother to motherhood, where invoking motherhood can feel limiting to some women um, who either struggle with motherhood or are not mothers for various reasons, um, or just feel like it's making her into kind of a, a reproductive vessel. Um, but ignoring it or ignoring that component reduces, she calls it, uh, quote, reduces female power and import. Yeah. 
do you have any thoughts about why Heavenly Mother seems so, so much uh, like so fraught, um, like both in the LDS church and in like these fundamentalist circles where like, she just seems caught between difficult and painful issues so much more than, than Heavenly Father, or, or maybe you don't feel that way, is she? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, she is. And I mean, I want to first say that, you know, um, abuse happens everywhere. Uh, Megan Goodwin has written a lot about this. Um, fundamentalism, unfortunately, has been kind of synonymous with abuse for many reasons. Um, but, you know, abuse happens in the LDS church the same way it does. So I just kind of want to mention that. Um, I think the difficulty of Heavenly Mother's gendered reality is simply that she's a woman. <laughs> um, and a lot of how we talk about Heavenly Mother is a projection of the reality of her daughters mm -hmm. um, and the life that women live um, in this world. So even like even this kind of when a lot of women talk about feeling invisible um, and then they have an invisible Heavenly Mother, I think a lot of that is just the re I think the fraught nature of Heavenly Mother is being a woman that especially like Mormon women have this grand theology truly of exaltation and becoming gods um but then also are often often feel silenced in the pews and there's this kind of tension that many mormon women face um and that also ends up being the tension of their heavenly mother um and so that is an absolutely fraught and difficult dynamic um you know i don't study the lds church so uh, but in the circles i work with um one of the reasons for this art that I wrote this article initially was um, reading about fundamentalist women who received their second anointing and were given really a lot of authority in their religious space. Um, and at the same time, a friend of mine sent me a picture over just over like Facebook Messenger of his wife when she was ordained an eldress um, and her ordin the or language of her ordination is in the article and kind of realizing this really complicated reality of priesthood has been available to women in the history of the LDS church, the trade-off is polygamy. And that's kind of historically been this complicated reality. Um, and I realize for LDS women, that's hard. Uh, and so I don't want to discount the pain of that. Um, and what's kind of interesting is in fundamentalist Mormonism, that never changed. And so that kind of is more complicated reality is that um, women's or like full ordination, not just kind of in the washing and anointing and not just in the second anointing, but full priesthood ordination is available to Mormon women. Um, it always has been. The trade-off was and is still polygamy. Right. Wow. Thank you. I just wanted to open up this question to the rest of the group. Um, any, any additional thoughts to this? issue of sort of the double bind that Heavenly Mother is, seems to be found in sort of across the Mormon spectrum. Yeah, Katie. Yeah, I have a question for Christina with um, the fundamentalist women having access to talk about Heavenly Mother and, you know, being on that side of the trade-off where the polygamy is their expectation, both in this life and in the next life. Do you see fundamentalist women having room to write about Heavenly Mother, to speak, um, to create art, or is it more in like informal discussions and it's still male leaders who, who do any creation of theology? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. 
Um, I mean, most of what I, when most of the theology generally I hear is very much in, you know, canning kitchens and living rooms. Um, But I think that's where a lot of theology is created anyway, (laughs) Not, not just in Mormonism, but that is the nature of good theology isn't just created, you know, behind a desk. Um, I haven't seen a lot of art and writings by women. And I think a lot of that is Mormon fundamentalism is we're still in, we're still in the weird in between where Mormon fundamentalism and the LDS church still look a lot alike. Um, We haven't fully moved beyond that. So a lot of the way that fundamentalist women talk about Heavenly Mother is still very LDS, um, even though they have the language about it. Um, and when you do hear about Heavenly Mother and fundamentalism, yes, it's plural. Um, yes, historically, there are names for her. Um, but it's still, it, it's an interesting thing where it is polygamous, of course, um, but you only hear about Eve. <laughs> you don't hear about, even though we have, we, we know that one's name is Phoebe, we know one's name is Sarah, we know one's name is Sophia. Um, you're only going to hear about Eve usually, <laughs> though. So there's still kind of this like interesting tension about who's talking about her and how they even talk about her in church. Okay, so uh, Christina has this quote um, from another scholar who writes, uh, the heavenly mother discourse does very little to unwrite the confining of femininity to the sphere of reproduction. And I wanted to throw this out to the, to the entire group. Do you all believe that this is true? And if it does, if it is, if if this hasn't happened, then then what would breaking that that constriction look like? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, Catherine. I think that um, our discourse largely as we've sort of discussed reflects where we are culturally and where we are developmentally as women and there's a lot of work we have to do in terms of understanding ourselves and understanding where that projection goes and how far that should go and where sort of we need to tap into the divine source and have direct experiences with the divine to have our eyes opened to what divinity is. And that's a very personal and intimate journey that we're all asked to go on. Um, Over the years that I've studied the divine feminine, I've really come to rely on and understand, I think more and more the power of archetypes in this journey. Mm. Um, So these images, these symbols, these, these figures in our psyches that really ground us to to what is real. So they're images and themes and legends and myths that transcend space and time. So they carry sort of this, this uh, like in Jungian psychology would be the collective unconscious, the space where we all can see an image and grasp a fundamental meaning to that image and and place a certain meaning to that image. And I think um, for me, what has been lacking is that sort of inner work collectively that we we need to sort of go to those spaces and and look and see. Now, 
why is it uncomfortable for us to to equate reproduction with a female goddess? What about our journey feels unsatisfying? And perhaps what do what does the scripture what do scriptures what do sacred texts what do um, mythologies or these archetypal figures have to teach us about what that power really is outside of the constraints of patriarchy and outside of our cultural lenses because we all we all we, we all carry that and we all but we all are also promised that through the power of the spirit our eyes can be opened beyond those constraints so looking at those archetypes has been really powerful to me and helped me feel very comfortable ascribing like the powers of creation to a heavenly mother, because I know that's not just reproduction, that's death and destruction, that it's a life death life cycle, that those powers are regenerative. Um, and the femininity isn't just within a female body, it's within everybody because we are all children of a mother. Um, so yeah, that's sort of where I went with that question. Wow, that's beautiful, Catherine. And I I feel like that just underscores how important it is that um, we turn to artists and poets and philosophers about this topic um, because your answer is just so um, rich and thoughtful and has sort of sent me on all kinds of new ideas. And, um, on this, on, on the idea of Heavenly Mother and, and this particular um, issue. So yeah, thank you. I, I, there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah, Blair. Yeah, I also wanted to say to the specific question too about why this seems to be wrapped up around Heavenly Mother versus Heavenly Father. And I just wanted to say that I see this double bind as something absolutely beautiful that so many people are wrestling with the question. Heavenly Father didn't really invoke the question for a lot of women or maybe not even a lot of men about where does their creative power lie. Mm -hmm. But women saw Heavenly Mother archetype and were like, I'm wrestling with this in ways that I have never been provoked to wrestle in ways before. So I, so well, Heavenly Mother's fraught around all this controversy and all these difficult issues, like it hits with on race, polygamy and um, environmentalism, everything and da, da, da. And I'm like, that is her beauty, mm. that she is at the center of this conversation that is so much bigger than a uterus having babies. Like it's so much more, but because we have a physical theology, yeah, we think that, but let you know, it's just so much more than that. So I just want to say bravo. And I'm just like happy to be in the room with all of you because <laughs> I love that we're all talking about it. Yeah. The, the idea of like truth is proved in tension. Right. There's a lot of tension in, in this topic. And yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. If it's just easy and laid out, um, maybe you understand a lot less. I think we're going to get to that more with, um, with Catherine's poem at the end of this or later on in this discussion. I just, I just really quickly want to highlight I mean, again what Blair said, um, that these same conversations just don't happen about a Heavenly Father when both men and women take make the same covenants about posterity. And both fatherhood and motherhood are both tied 
to reproduction. Um, and that's a really important thing, not only about the conversation about Heavenly Mother, but also about the conversation about women's priesthood and the possibility for women in the priesthood um, is that men have fatherhood too. And we mm -hmm. talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, okay, so one more question about your article, um, Christina. So some some scholars have posited that the churches move away from Heavenly Mother, the, the LDS churches move away from Heavenly Mother in the early 20th century, uh, stemmed from a desire to be more mainstream, to kind of appeal more to sort of white bread America, right? Look a little less weird. Um, from your article, I think you would say that it came with a move away from polygamy uh, since the two were tied so so closely together. And I'm wondering if you, in your view, does the tentative embrace of Heavenly Mother from LDS church leadership today um, with more mentions of heavenly parents in general conference, allowing art uh, depicting heavenly mother and heavenly father together in the conference center. Does that reflect more confidence that we've shed, that the Elders Church has shed the image of polygamy or is it something else? <laughs> I'm always the biggest bummer about polygamy. I'm so sorry <laughs> uh, in these situations. Because I mean, again, I just want to highlight that the Mormons that I spend a lot of time, research time with and study are practicing polygamy. <laughs> the women who I work with are, and I would say eight out of 10 are converts from the LDS church and are now living the principle. So, I mean, that's going to always kind of be in the background of my answer. Um, in terms of trying to be more mainstream, I've heard that many times, of course, um, and I don't, I don't buy it. And I don't buy it because, I mean, last year I did a consecration to Mary, like I'm consecrated to Our Lady of Sorrows. Like, I don't, you know, I mean, talking about mom in heaven is like, it's super common. It's a majority of the world's Christians believe in a mother in heaven. Um, and so I don't, I don't buy that. And I mean, the reality is I you know, at the last conference, we all kind of watched um, as there isn't an embrace of Heavenly Mother. Um, I'm just going to say it, unfortunately. I mean, there isn't a kind of new radical embrace of her as much as many people were waiting for it. Um, and that's not to discount the women who are, of course, talking about and praying to and singing about Heavenly Mother because that exists and that's very real Mormonism and that's a real expression of Mormonism. But institutionally, um, I don't know if there's an embrace um, other than kind of talking about whether she exists. Um, and until it's kind of said that she exists and she's monogamous, um, I don't think I'm prepared to say that it's separated from polygamy. I mean, 132 is still canonized. There are two leaders in the first presidency of the LDS church who are going to be polygamists at their exaltation. Um, and so I don't, I don't think we can assume that this is kind of a shedding of their polygamous background. Um, I very much do, I am firmly in the camp of she's not talked about because she's one of many. Um, and this is really kind of only amplified by the fact that in from my perspective, um, the only place I've institutionally, like at an institutional level, um, seen her named and sung about 
is in places where polygamy is not only the law of heaven, but it's also the law of earth. Hmm. All right, thank you. It's oh, really interesting perspective. Um, okay, Katie. Uh, Katie Rich, your personal narrative about Heavenly Mother, which is just heartbreaking and just beautifully written. Um, this, you, you have a story about Terry Templest Williams and um, this line was, was so good. You wrote, and I wondered having lost my first pregnancy to miscarriage a few months earlier, even among Mormon feminists in a tradition that sees Eve differently, are a woman's power and belonging expressed exclusively through the multiplication of her sorrow and her conception. Um, can you say more about this in the context of Heavenly Mother and what it means for our concept of, of a divine feminine? Yeah, I think it relates to that question that you asked with Christina from, um, Peter Coviello about the Heavenly Mother discourse is very little to unwrite the confining of femininity, femininity to the sphere of reproduction. And so the question of women's connection to reproduction and the feminine divine connection, that was something that I was deeply grappling with at the time in this moment that I speak about in my essay. So I was 22 years old and as a graduate student and was facing this immense cognitive dissonance from the expectations I had been given of um, being raised, you know, in the LDS church and going to young women's and going to seminary and being told that we honored Eve as making this like wise and brave choice to partake of the fruit and to leave the garden and that her work, like what she did was necessary and that we honor her. Um, and then I went to the temple and I did not see that reflected in our rituals and our ceremonies in the endowment. And I did not see Heavenly Mother represented in any comparable way to how Heavenly Father is represented in the endowment. And that was very heartbreaking for me. And so I'm entering grad school and I'm reading Mormon feminist books for the first time and having this awakening and then realizing that, e that even perhaps among some Mormon feminists, there's still this expectation of um, physical motherhood in order to have a connection to Mormon women. There was a scholar who reviewed Terry Tempest Williams' book, Refuge, and criticized her, saying that by not having biological children of her own, she's refusing her connection to Mormon women. And that, um, I think, you know, created this moment for me as I had just had a miscarriage and then the next year had um, was pregnant with my, my, what became my first, firstborn son of trying to find my space in the church and in, in this theology and seeing how deeply it was still tied to physical motherhood, whether biological or adoption, that motherhood was the path towards Mormon womanhood and the path towards, um, any resemblance to what we talked about with heavenly mother. And I see that now, um, connecting to, to broader issues like how we compare motherhood to priesthood, not motherhood to fatherhood. And um, Catherine Schertz has traced the origin of some of those arguments in, um, in looking at Susie Young Gates and her daughter, Leah Whitsell, and how Leah's writing on um, the motherhood priesthood parallel then made it into priesthood manuals 
and how that has kind of perpetuated and, and kept going throughout the 20th century and is still a very prominent idea today that we, um, that we see women's power as being tied to physical motherhood. And, you know, I, you know, a lot of this has been touched on already that we are um, homogenizing womanhood into motherhood and that we deify our, our own prejudices and our own limitations in how we talk about women and then how that translates to heavenly mother and that we don't have um, room for a lot of this imagination of other models of womanhood, other models of personhood, other, you know, outside of this cisgender heterosexual relationship where women, their power comes through exclusively motherhood. And that's something that um, can feel very limiting in, in our searching. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's so, um, you wrote about it so beautifully from a perspective of someone who, you know, has these four children and you have been going through pregnancy and childbirth yourself. And yet you still found this concept sort of limiting and, and flattening. Yeah, um, this week actually is the 10 year anniversary of my mom's death. Um, and I was writing about that in the essay about how we buried her the day before Mother's Day. And that was um, 10 years ago. And um, my experience in, in entering, thinking about these issues of Heavenly Mother and of womanhood um, kind of originated at, the, at that same time as my mom was going through cancer and was dying from cancer and then feeling this, you know, this, this separation. Um, and for me, I, I didn't want my own life and my experience to be collapsed into this monolith of all I am is a physical mother. And I see how I think it was Julie Hanks years ago that I first got the site, this phrase from how the motherhood is a relationship, not a role. Mm. And that phrase has been very empowering for me to, to keep in mind that, you know, I, I'm a person with lots of different relationships, um, as a spouse, as a sister, a daughter, a friend, um, a teacher and, um, mother is one of those relationships. And it's a very important relationship and it's a relationship with responsibilities, but it is not a full identity. And to kind of have that cast into the expectations of what my eternity would look like um, did not feel like any idea of heaven to me. Hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, Later in the, in the essay you wrote, perhaps it is an intentional mechanism of Mormon patriarchy that women are at times honored as symbols while actual women are cut out of the structure of power. And that just hit home in so many ways, or I, you know, you see that exact um, dynamic playing out um, many times at church, but I, you give several examples of this in practice. 
And um, I, I think it is what you believe. It, it seems like this is what you believe the current LDS leadership wants for, for Heavenly Mother. Um, can you say more about that? And then I'd, I'd like to open this up to, to the rest of the group as well. Yeah, it's hard for me to say whether it's what they want or whether it's what I see happen. Yeah, right? thank you for, yeah. for separating that. Yeah, there might not be that same intentionality. Um, and I, I can't you know, speak for what the mindset of the current leaders is. But when I read um, stuff from like mid 1840s, right? Things from Brigham Young, from Heber C. Kimball. And they are saying things like God knew who Eve was and um, limited her and you know, made her subject to her husband because God knew who Eve was. And, um, and that these are you know, men who had a very outsized role in the development of, of the temple and in, of our rituals and our ceremonies. And then in the 1870s of having those finally like written down and recorded. Um, I don't know what our current leaders would think about those symbols, but I think we, we have this long tradition in which um, people who, in which we need to like reevaluate if the way we include women in our rituals and the way we use these symbols reflect reflect our current beliefs. And if they don't, then we need to change that. Um, in, your, in your essay in this um, issue, you quote Taylor Petrie um, in his article, Rethinking Mormonism's Heavenly Mother, that um, the threat of the theology of Heavenly Mother stems from collapsing the differences of women into a singular representation. And then you look at how this last decade of artistic representation has already begun to offer different responses. And I see the power of symbolism of, of kind of in that space where symbols give us the opportunity to go deeper and consider new meanings, um, but they can't be collapsed into that monolith in order for that to happen. And so um, we have this opportunity to have this invitation to go deeper and not to hold them as a stopping point, but as a starting point to, to consider more possibilities. Yeah, thank you. I love that. Thanks for bringing art into it. Any other thoughts about this? Just quickly, I really love um, how you end on Heavenly Mother needs a theology of her own. The theology will need to grow out of the voices of those who have sought her, which will require centering the voices of the marginalized, not pretending that they aren't speaking. Um, I mean, that's, that's where I feel like our power resides as women is that we, and this will probably be <laughs> a broken record for me is that it's our own lived experience. Our, it's our embodied experience of what it means to be feminine and to follow a divinely feminine figure or image or theology. And for me, that means really heeding the voice of interconnection and love and abundance and compassion which dissolves patriarchy like if we women rise to that voice inside of us patriarchy dissolves I really believe that on a fundamental level and that's where we in that process of coming into our own recognition of what is real about us and inside of inside of us versus what is illusionary 
there's an emergent quality to that. There's a way in which Zion becomes manifest in our own hearts and we're able to see eye to eye and hear and have a vision that also heals everyone else, right? That there's this effect of um, maturing the feminine in every individual, maturing the masculine in every, in every individual um, brings that wholeness and healing. And I, I personally feel like that is what is trying to arise, um, not just within Mormonism, but on a global scale. This recognition that we can't keep using the earth for our own purposes and disregarding the knowledge of the natural world and the natural of indigenous communities. We can't keep pretending like climate change isn't happening. We can't keep pretending like harming the least of these isn't harming ourselves, and I feel that I feel the mother in that call. I feel a very feminine voice in that call. Wow, thank you. That's beautiful, Esther. Did you want to jump in? Yes. Um, so my thesis research was on infertility and how those narratives are told across sort of the pantheon of um, Judeo-Christian tradition. And something that I found very interesting is I compared the different ways um, those narratives were approached and the apologetics that are offered for it in different religious and theological settings is that oftentimes it ties back into the base concept of what is the purpose of mortal life. And specifically as gender and you know the physicality of procreation is related to that, how do we make sense of it in, in the construct that theology is giving us for the purpose of mortality? And something that's very unique to Latter-day Saint and you know broader Mormon theology, and that complicates this a little, and I think that makes it extra scary for patriarchal views of theology, is that if we aren't teaching that physical birth is necessary for salvation, which some iterations of Christianity have taught. You see this, especially like in the Middle Ages and things like that, that, you know, a woman giving birth was her atoning for Eve's sins. And that's not something that we teach in modern state tradition. And so therefore, if our purpose is to become like God and childbirth is not necessary for that, then what does that mean? And I think you know, inevitably what falls into that hole is priesthood and our exercise of priesthood and this practice of exercising um, godly power. And so when women claim this narrative of heavenly mother, it is a very easy next step into saying, okay, we are claiming godly power. And that's a big, scary thought for some people. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for adding that. Yeah, Blair. Yeah, about claiming godly power, amen. Yes, more of this, please. Um, one, one of the themes I'm seeing throughout this is this idea of like metaphor and reflection. Heavenly Mother's reflection of our current tension and things we're working through. It's a reflection of the power imbalances and things like that. And I just wanted to note that... Um, shedding away some of these patriarchal views of theology and even eventually policy comes from empowering women 
empowering those stories, empowering the views and um, even the voices, even the little things in um, gospel doctrine and all sorts of things. And that the more we are companions to each other, the more powerful Heavenly Mother becomes in our visions, that it is a collective network of all of us working together. If we think that she is invisible or disempowered in some way, how are we not empowering each other as women? This isn't necessarily something for men to come in and fix. This is about us empowering one another in those spaces. And I think, um, just in my worldview, one of the one of the things I say to my fellow women loving women out there is that we really get to see women in a very special way. And it's not just about being a lesbian or bi or anything sexual. I mean, of course, it's all those things. You're a lesbian, but it's more than that. It's about seeing another woman as your life partner and not your competition. I don't care what that guy is talking about. I'm a lesbian. I'm talking to you. I'm looking at you. You know what I mean? And so when we think about like empowering Heavenly Mother and empowering this network of women and that being reflected in a symbiotic relationship, uh, for all the queer women out there listening to this, this is one of your superpowers and you get to share that superpower. It's the idea of uplifting and empowering women as your partners, not your competition. And the more we can do that, the less I think we'll feel about her being disempowered or her invisibility or anything like that, because we will be taking care of each other. Mm. Yeah. And then on heaven as it is in earth, right? Um, okay, Catherine, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about your just beautiful poem. This is really one of my favorites that dialogue has ever published honestly it's so stunning um yeah. would you um would you just go ahead and read it would you feel up to to reading the whole thing yeah it's not long <laughs> it's not long and it's just stunning so I want everyone to hear it thank you ascension after John Donne embrace the first and forever night heartening as this moon journeys from cresting to full figured, and in this ecstasy begins to fall, earthward, pulling me down to orchards heavy and underground, into mysteries of regeneration, soft bellied seeds nursing, death life death her step makes darkness delicious, licking sweet syrups from fungi kingdoms, mother God is not the sun, the straight golden path but braided roots, white pairs of underworld, offering themselves into these my hands, dispelling the garment of wrath. Lady wisdom reigns in me, in time and ever presence, to my own recovered humanity, my heart finally. My holy cloud, the only holy ghost, knit my heart with wind and rain and wolf. Oh, it's just beautiful. Um, maybe it's my own love of walking in the woods and looking at fungi, but I just thought this was so perfect. Um, I love this line, her step makes darkness delicious. Can you say more about that? 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so in sort of my journey, I've been researching and studying for almost a decade and looking at different archetypes and images and myths. And a reoccurring sort of theme that I've found is the expression of the feminine in the shadows, in the shadowlands, in the underground, in the underworld, and just in the teeming rich soil, all of the incredible networks of life that we find there. And there's something very sensual and delicious to me in like seeing the mysteries of regeneration sort of imagined and brought forth in your own psyche and your own soul and knowing that you are the source of this generation you are the source of this beauty and this very sensual becoming mm. and it just um i think we're we're really taught to fear what we can't see and what we don't know in this sort of dark region in our souls and to seek for light right we're always told to sort of go to the light but this is the focus of this poem is in direct contrast to Dunn's poem, which is all about the sun, S-O-N, and the sun, S-U-N, and this direct, straight ascension path that's full of light, and it's got, you know, very masculine energy. But there's another portion to the ascension path. There's an undulating and cyclical portion to the ascension path. There's the darkness. There's the soul searching and the, the seeking for the mysteries of God that, um, that we just really, you know, we can't really tap into in this life. I think that Mormonism, the newness of our faith is sort of manifest in how we, we don't know what to do with mysticism. We don't know what to do with this idea that God can be beyond our comprehension and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um so yeah that was a long answer but yeah. that's beautiful I'm I'm a gardener and I love plants and what you're describing reminds me of certain plants that um require periods of darkness mm. so uh, we talk all the time about how plants need light of course light is one of the things that plants that plants have to have but some plants if they if you shine a light on them all the time, they will fail um, because they have to have periods of, of when the lights turn off and, and they sit in darkness. And um, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm one of those plants <laughs> too. Um, we need, we need, um, we need the wandering path and we need periods of darkness and we need the, the decomposing um, things in the woods, right? Yeah. Thank you. Esther, did you want to add? something yeah um when she was talking about archetypes and this idea of the feminine being represented by darkness the first thing that comes to mind is in um chinese symbolism that when you look at the black and white dichotomy female is usually the black and it represents chaos and when i first learned that it really irritated me because i was like you know especially since I was that kid who always got teased growing up for having a really messy room because that's just how my brain works like there's order to my chaos type thing and as I've sat with that and thought about it and looked at these archetypes across different cultures and across different art forms 
I realized that that immediate negative reaction to chaos equals bad was something that I'd been taught through a Western and through a patriarchal view of what creation should look like. And that oftentimes feminine forms of creation are a little messier. Um, and it's like, even if you think back to like the concept of, of childbirth and that like it's such a messy process, it's chaos really that is being organized. Or, you know, for me as an artist, there's a lot about my process that is really chaotic, but I feel like there's a divine power when I'm able to pull something meaningful and spiritual out of that process. And so really re um, assessing what I, what I evaluate when we talk about organization systems and creation systems. Um, and then with the mushrooms, there's just so much I love about this poem. Um, the idea with like plant systems and that you have to have the, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the word, but it's that underground My part of the mushroom. Saying. Yeah, exactly. That that's an essential part of a functioning forest and an essential part of a really well-functioning garden as well, but it's not something that's seen. And it just makes me think of like this whole dichotomy we're talking about of like things that are seen and things that are unseen and how that ties into the identity of femininity and particularly divine feminine within our structures that we currently exist in. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Um... So we've talked about this a little bit, but you you write this idea of not the sun, the straight golden path, um, in contrast to, to to John Donne's poem, and you also reference fungi and and mushroom hunting or going through the woods would not be the straight deliberate line, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of imagery in your poem of of searching the winding path, seeking, and um, sort of a a really strong comparison to like planted crops versus someone gathering food in the woods. Um, we've, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to get more of your thoughts. Do you believe there is something important or maybe even crucial to the process of finding or seeking or searching for Heavenly Mother rather than the clearer sort of more obvious path and we, that we've been given to, to Heavenly Father? Yeah, I, I think it's intrinsic to her nature. Um, in the studies I've done looking at biblical, the work of biblical scholars, um, I've, I've read enough that I feel confident in saying that she, the mother, at least in ancient Israel, was at home in the Holy of Holies, in the space, the most sacred space in the temple. And that what she represented in that space was knowing and understanding the mysteries of creation. And in some sacred texts, it defines it as understanding the paths of everything that lives. Mm. And for me, that is um, incredibly profound that there's this way in which she incorporates everything and understands the purposes of everything and that that is, we access that only by living a higher law. Like that space is the Holy of Holies. That's a space where the full power of the priesthood for all, whoever, you know, makes that journey, who goes along that path, who performs 
not just the rituals and the ordinances, but gives their heart completely to God, that's that's the final endowment is that kind of knowledge of the mysteries of creation. So I I, I don't I think that she is um, at the end of that path and that's not a direct line. That's not, you know, do all of these performative exercises and then she will be there. Mm-hmm. It's essentially giving ourselves over to that divine power and manifesting in the world we live in now that the feminine is that important, is that real, is that powerful in the reality that she is that tree. She is that menorah in the center of the temple. She is the tree of life of Eden. She is there with the father. She's there with the son. And she always has been. And it really is about our desire for her. The reason she left the temple, the reason why she's been in exile has been our lack of desire, our desire for the lesser law, for turning away as the children of Israel did on Mount Sinai and saying, no, you speak to God, Moses, and then you tell us. Yeah. You know, there's so many times over the course of history where we have literally said, no, we prefer a prophet. We don't want to become the prophets and the prophetesses. We want someone to do that for us because it's excruciating work. Hmm. It requires a full change. And um, so in, in that sense, I do feel like she is extremely sacred, not too sacred to talk about, obviously, but there is a, a sacredness that surrounds her um, that I think we have, we have yet to really fully sit with, I think, in the degree of reverence that, that it deserves. Wow, thank you. I- it's just brilliant. Um, yeah, there's a lot that I'm going to have to um, sort of keep thinking about with everything that you just said. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, we need to wrap up, but I just wanted to mention um, the, the blank pages at the end of this issue that are dedicated to those who have not been able to speak about Heavenly Mother. And um, I just feel like we're all... Um, sort of standing on shoulders of, of women who have been thinking and um, whispering and talking privately and talking publicly and, um, and sharing these ideas um, or ideas about Heavenly Mother for decades and, and even centuries. And uh, just wanted to uh, yeah, have a moment of gratitude for them and also um, to dialogue for sort of setting aside those pages and mentioning, uh, sort of giving space to, to those women um, and, and, you know, all of all people who, who have not been allowed to speak about this issue. So I think that's um, a really important um, sort of space to hold for, for our community. Um, and yeah, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Margaret. Um, I really appreciate all of our audience members here. Got some great little feedback that came in. Um, this is a, a really wonderful tradition that we look forward to continuing as dialogue and um, exploring further topics. So.
I hope you all have a great week and join us next Sunday for Sunday school. We'll be having a special Mother's Day lesson, which will again reiterate a lot of these similar topics. I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dialogue and Review. To find more Dialogue podcasts, please visit us at dialoguejournal.com. And thank you. Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network.